You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with you, Yitzhak Kolakowski. Uh, we want to start tonight, uh, I guess, in a way, uh, sort of an obituaries of two Jewish actors um, who passed away this last week. Um, one of them uh, had achieved probably a pretty great prominence, was almost an A-lister. Uh, that was James Kahn, who uh, died at the age of 82. Um, and the other, uh, Larry Storch, who I don't think nobody would ever say that Larry was an A-lister, um, but he was pretty active and pretty uh, a constant presence on television for many, many years. Uh, and somebody that uh, Yitzchak you actually knew personally, so no, I, I, knew. I I met him once. Oh, <laughs> oh you met him personally. I he, just he, he was at Monster Bash, and I I, we spent a lot of time talking to him. We we took picture with him, and uh, right. so he, we, he he was very misfall that my kids could speak Yiddish. He he was speaking to them in Yiddish. Then Edmonds and Altazeda. So Larry. You know, again, he was, you know, part of a whole cadre, I think, of, you know, performers of the, I guess, 40s, 50s, and 60s, Jewish fellows from, I guess, from the Northeast. Yeah, he continued into the 70s, 80s. He was, he was very, people don't know, he did a lot of voice work uh, in a lot of cartoons. He was the first, the first uh, one to play the Joker in a Batman cartoon. That's so, before Mark Hamill, huh? Well, well before Mark Hamill, yeah. Are you talking about some of the... In other words, the Joker of the Super Friends, maybe. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we don't count those. You know, uh, <laughs> no, no. Seriously, Super Friends was barely animation. You know what I'm saying? It was only really the animated series was really when animation began for cartoons to really be to capture who these superheroes were. Up until that time, it was just a way to sell the comic books. You know, it was just to, you know, the kids should have something to watch. But yeah, look, let's give Larry Storch his due. He was a uh, he tried to stay active. We talked a thing on this program. I don't remember if it was which episode, but we talked about um, F Troop and we talked about his role as Agarn. And that uh, I, I think you'd probably say that was his most well-known character, right? Definitely, yeah. That's that's pretty much. And he, whenever he appeared in public, he'd wear the hat with the uh, the the Corporal Agarn hat. And yes. he, right, and. Um, Definitely a, a, a fun-loving uh, fellow, and um... he, he loved he loved life. He loved people. And he loved his fans. He he was such a heartsick person. He really, you know, his last public appearance. I I, I had a half a minute to go, but I didn't go. And then I I knew he, he had the birthday. His hundredth birthday was planned for January. He he made it uh, a, a, a half a year to his hundredth birthday. He's a ninety-nine and a half exactly, Lemisparum. Uh, and he, um, so I was thinking, I, I had a very strong hop. I mean, I would go down to, to Manhattan for his 100th birthday, but the, he had a public appearance in New Jersey at some sort of a, not a dude ranch, some sort of like a Western recreation. And I saw it was kind of expensive to get in. So I, I didn't, I regret that I didn't go to that, but I saw videos of that. It was last year, I believe. And he was waving to all the people saying, I love you, I love you. And, and you, you could tell he really meant it. He really, it gave him a lot of chias to be able to uh, well, look, interact with his fans and everything. 
Yeah, well, you know, you know, obviously, people who I guess watching, I guess F Troop is on on some uh, uh, Nick at Night or Tubi or some sort of. I, I I remember it on Nick at Night back, you know, when I watched Nick at Night in the nineties. That's that's I grew up watching. That was one of my favorite shows, you know, really. But now uh, I can't find it. I can't find it uh, streaming anywhere. I don't know. It's uh, a little bit. Look, you know, most uh, most of the others are already gone, you know, including, you know, Ken Barry and yeah, he just uh, passed away. Uh, uh, yeah, Ken Barry and Forrest Tucker. Um, look, 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 you know, again, we need we, we probably need Tom Shabilla here to tell us about the significance of F Troop in the history of television. But uh, I mean, that's another show that went from black and white to color. That's the yeah, right. So the first, again, the first season we, was black and white, and it went over the color, and it and it changed. With, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe we don't know if it got better or got worse. But I guess you know he I think was consistent. I, I'm sure he did. I'm sure if we look at him this page, we could probably find him in hundreds and hundreds of 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 uh programs uh, one of the things i think which which is pretty great i mean obviously god didn't just give him long urine as we said but it sounds like his mind was still with him well into his 90s although you said he had a caretaker who would take care of him he's still pretty much like you say he he was still able to carry on conversations he, so he still he had a pretty good long life yeah yeah he was he 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 and he enjoyed life and he he enjoyed he we you know, when we saw him was, I would guess, about four or five years ago, and uh, maybe more, maybe six years ago now. But it was, uh, it was very, it was very, very nice conversations. You know, we spent a lot of time with him because it was a small, a small program. And, and I was reading, you know, people writing their memories on Facebook and, and Twitter and things. And he, this uh, one woman said, you know, she was at New York City Comic Con, and he was there and nobody nobody stopped to talk to him so she went over to to talk to him and she said you know my mother is a big fan so he said well do you have a phone with you she said yes and he said well let's let's call her let's talk to her so you know that was uh and and what i remember you know working as a as a chaplain uh, i think that was before i started working at waymart but i was working at rockland psychiatric center where i still work and one of the patients there one of the residents had all kinds of very interesting delusions and one was that you know was that f troop was was real historical um you know part of the world and and that he was he was one of the soldiers there and so when i mentioned this to larry he he very sincerely he wanted to send something to him and i i just i knew that if if i if i would bring something to him i'd have to bring to everybody you know you can't you can't give a piece of candy to one person and not to everybody in a situation like that so unfortunately i wasn't able to 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 do that but he uh he he was very uh he really wanted to to reach out to to this person uh at where he was and then when i when i showed him the picture of my family and i with with larry this this patient he said yeah i remember we that was my corporal. We, you know, we, you know, we, yeah. uh, we, we had some good times back in the 1870s, you know, <laughs> after well, the Civil War, you know, because he, well, this guy's delusion was that he was in every war since I don't know since the the, the French and Indian War. He, he's, he's been alive for about I don't know, 300 years, and well, who uh, knows? Who knows? An old soul. I know that. Uh, I know that uh, Larry Storch. Uh, 
also was a uh i think he was a i think he did borscht belt stuff i think he was a comic in the catskills as well uh, i'm not sure exactly you know how many uh, uh, you know number one shows he did but he was definitely uh known as a comedian uh, before he became a uh, before he was on television yeah that um, was one of the things i saw again posted on facebook was uh, uh rosemary's daughter posts a lot of memories of her mother who passed away a few years ago now she also and, she also made it to almost a hundred herself, Rosemary. Yeah, and they were and yeah, she she passed away pretty recently, and they um, and they were good friends, you know, going back and like oh yeah, they were was very young, and it's a picture of this the two of them with David Niven when Larry Storch was very young. This was, you know, I think in the late forties, maybe you know. Sure. Well, uh, again, I think the um, um, you know, he. Uh, I know that he he actually played a, some a serious role once in a while. I know that uh, um, he was um, in, in, in Porgy and Bess. He actually, although that's a musical, I think he played a, a serious role there, sort of a mean guy, <laughs> which was unusual. Um, so he was able to do a lot of stuff. Look, I can't tell you much about F Troop, but I will t- that, that, to call it stellar, important television. But I think one of the things F Troop had, which was you know, we talked about how terrible Hogan's Heroes was a couple of weeks ago, right? The idea of a, you know, the idea of a concentration camp. But F Troop had sort of some, sort of the same mentality, which is that what you see as the official um, roles that people have is really what's behind it is it's what's really important. That many times, you know, it's it's a fiction uh, who's in charge and who's really, you know, what your rank is. Um, even the roles of antagonists of Indians versus, uh, you know, the army, as we all know from, you know, the, the Indians had to act as if they were fiercer than they really were, right? But really, um, you know, um, Agarn and, and O'Rourke and um, and uh, Chief Wild Eagle, you know, they were all, they were the ones that really knew what was going on. So it's almost like society forces us to go into these, 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 fixed roles of of antagonist and um uh, leader and follower whereas part of i think what f troop was about was that underneath we're all pretty much all the same and 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 many times we we sort of have to begrudgingly go along with stuff but we really enjoy ourselves when we can throw uh that artifice away and maybe that's uh, a decent message uh, not to get so caught up in that, I think part of that's part of what F Troop was really trying to do. I think Agarn was, you know, he was constantly in that mode, and you know that's why I think Forrest Tucker had to always. I think I the image I have of him is always slapping him on the head with the uh, like he's always hitting him on the head with something, right? With, with, with that, you know, kind of like Gilligan's Island, I think. Right, right, sort of like it's sort of a little bit like uh, like Laurel, like uh, you know Stan Laurel. You know, there was, uh, you know, that that. Uh, chemistry between Forrest Tucker and him you know yeah. had that had that sort of aspect to it Abbott and Costello type of thing so yeah, yeah well look he should have a list of gun aid I know uh, James Kahn I can't really say much about him I mean, there was a beautiful write-up in the New York Times by um there just the other day about his significance and what he meant and his subtlety and greatness as an actor um he had a little bit of a role, some roles in television before he jumped into movies. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, of course, he used them in a in a, a movie called The Rain People. I actually saw him in a, in a number of films that made an impression on me. Um, the first one, I guess, that made an impression on me was Brian's Song from 1971, 
Um, it was a, I had actually read the book, uh, which is actually Gail Sayers book, which is called I am third that, um, uh, you know, Gail Sayers is, is, is meaning that first there's God and then there's his fellow man and I'm third. And part of where Gail Sayers got his, his, his faith and his sense of what was important in life was his relationship with Brian Piccolo and um, Billy D. Williams and James Kahn, young at those days, just you know, barely men in their late twenties and thirties. Kahn played uh, Brian Piccolo, who was a New York boy who made it onto the Chicago Bears team as a um, uh, sort of like a uh, you know second team running back, but was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and, you know, went through an excruciating death. Uh, and the friendship that he had, you know, the friendship in 1971 was very important to show, you know, black and white. Um, and I think uh, this role that uh, Khan played was just the first of many Italians. Obviously, the, the role he played the year, the, you know, Brian's song was, of course, a television movie that was, you know, was praised up into the high heavens. <laughs> it was about a person ascending to the high heaven. Uh, he was able to play a real, you know, pretty good death scene. And, um, you know, it was a, a double hanky movie, as they say. Um, you know, very popular. It was rerun a number of times. And then, uh, you know, Coppola uh, pegged him to for the godfather Coppola actually wanted him to play michael corleone who is really the main character in the godfather it's really not marlon brando uh we talked about the godfather a number of weeks ago with uh, my friend rabbi uh with mark gottlieb but um but really james Kahn didn't want to play that role james Kahn actually uh, urged Coppola to find someone else he wanted to play the um the actually a uh a supporting role uh sonny who uh, of course, Coppola filmed that incredible scene where Sonny gets shot uh, at the, um, as you know, at the toll booth. But Sonny is the heir apparent, the one who should be the heir, it seems. I only know that from The Simpsons, but... Yes, yes. But, you know, um, I could tell you that um, you know, Mario Puzo's book was a, was a real, you know, bodice ripper page turner that everybody had copies of, The Godfather. Mario Puzo was like a, you know, and, and, and Sonny was the most carnal uh, person in that book. Uh, and supposedly, you know, James Caan uh, was able to embody that uh, quick-tempered, angry, uh, powerfully macho um, and that, I think, was the performance that, although he was in many, many things after 1970s Godfather, most people, just like, you know, with, with, with Storch and F Troop, most people say, oh, go Khan, yeah, he was, he was in the Godfather. It, it was funny, Khan used to say that uh, wherever he went, people would say, watch out for the Tobas, watch out, people would scream at him, even, you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, he was also voted... I think that, you know, uh, he was given votes as the, you know, uh, you know, Italian American of the year a number of times. And he said, I'm Jewish. You know, you know, you know he's a Jewish guy from New York. I call you. Yeah. The movie was called Honeymoon in Vegas. I think it was uh, um, it, it's it's actually quite a good film, I think. Um, it's it's you know, Andrew Bergman was the director, was also the writer of that film. And in that film, um James Kahn plays a card shark sort of mobster type of fellow who takes Nicolas Cage for a tremendous amount of debt and he'll cancel the debt if he allows like <laughs> if he'll allow his wife who he's supposed to be having this marriage and honeymoon with uh, if he'll let his wife 
uh, stay with him and he'll cancel the debt. So it's actually quite an interesting film in terms of what it tells us about love and connectivity. And has a, as a, 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 and, and you know he plays sort of a tough guy with a little bit of a heart, but mostly a gangster type fellow. And I think that was it's unfortunate. Again, he did play a lot of uh, of roles in Misery. Of course, he um, he's sort of Stephen King stand in Misery, uh, based on the Stephen King book about the the writer who uh, crashes someplace and ends up being um, taken care of by a deranged fan. Um, but uh, I, yeah, again, I would say about Larry Storch, he went better, greater than his koyches. Uh, and was able to live that full life. I, I think James Caan never really was never really never realized that greatness of becoming, you know, the, the actor of the ages. People thought he was the next Paul Newman. Um, I don't think he ever. I don't think it ever got that far at all. And uh, I know he was picky about the roles that he took, and he said he wasn't in it for the money. But again, I, I see him more as someone who's if not potential wasted, I don't know. I, I don't know if people, if, if Hollywood knew how to use him correctly. I think he was pigeonholed in a way that Paul Newman never allowed himself to be pigeonholed. I mean, you look at Paul, the end of Paul Newman's career, uh, whether it's Bush casting the Sundance Kid um, and going towards uh, Nobody's Fool or The Verdict, uh, you know, he was able to play old age in a way that he was still the great Paul Newman. Again, I'm not sure if James Caan uh, you know, ever registered that way. I know he was in um, a number of television programs as well. But again, you know, two two actors who were known to him by the Kaisel thing on Twilin that I know. <laughs> oh, he, 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 again, they were they were both. Let's give them that that they lived in a world where that's antith- antithetical to Jewish values, and they both saw themselves as as Jews and and never tried to deny that in any way shape or form so that i guess is stands stands well for them someone who's not jewish at all actually raised catholic is someone i wanted to talk about a little bit um he's getting up in years as well uh i think he's uh at this at this point he has he has been active uh he is he also has all his gedanken about him uh bob newart and specifically i want to talk about an appreciation of newart and for people who are perhaps listening to this program uh, to check out the original Bob Newhart show, which I think ran on CBS from 1972 to 1978. Um, Newhart, of course, uh, really took America by storm, which is very strange considering his um, laid back, sort of sort of quiet, stammering attitude. Um, his pauses and his wry sense of humor it's, it's it's very different than the comedians in the 1960s that made such a great hit. Um, you know, unlike Mort Saul or, or Lenny Bruce, or even some of the comedy teams like, um, you know, uh, like, like, like Stiller and Mir or the Smothers Brothers that we mentioned before. Um, he was very different. He was not topical. He was not political. Uh, and yet his albums uh, were the top of the charts, the button-down Bob Newhart, and they were not meant to to be cruel. They weren't. There was there was no sense of of like, like a George Carlin or, or or trying to really attack 
the 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 sort of the foundations and the pillars of society they were just really riffs on on sort of some absurd things that are happening in the world uh, sort of like a meeting of, of a funny description of a story of a of a driving instructor with a with a a, a passenger a, a a student <laughs> uh the uh, positing the possibility of how Abraham Lincoln would have difficulty finding a job today. Um, uh, sort of, you know, talking about the uh, sort of almost everyday matters, but in a way that was amusing. Uh, and you can take a look at some of the reviews, Yitzchak, of, of, of his albums, A Breath of Fresh Air. People saw it as something life-affirming, you know, as, as the 60s seemed to herald rebellion, and you know, sort of like a, a complete um, dismissal of what uh, society and and wanted to impose. Bob Newhart was sort of like comfortable. He was somebody who was non-threatening, could make you laugh about yourself, make you laugh about normal everyday things, and he did it mostly about his reactions to someone else that was unseen. Like he would, it would either be the driving instructor or someone on the telephone. That was sort of Bob Newhart's shtick. And in the early 60s, if you look in, a little bit in his biography, you'll see that he had a, a short-lived television program, the Bob Newhart Show, for one year. But it was, it was a variety program. And then, of course, he was, um, he, he guest starred on a number of programs. Uh, he, he, um, he subbed for Carson many, many times. And uh, he was known, again, he put out a number of albums that I still think have, uh, can stand the test of time. There's a number of albums that are somewhat painful to listen to. I think New Art's humor, although in some ways it's dated, I think people can listen to it and, 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 and still really find ob- his observations of life in, in a way that is a non-threatening and yet perhaps does contain some message if you think about it now in 1972 after i think he had done a number of television programs um mary tyler moore and her husband grant tinker came to newhart and offered him this program uh, that he would star in and it would somehow in a way be uh, taken from the template that the Mary Tyler Moore show had. And we've talked about the Mary Tyler Moore show's template being a upgrading of the Dick Van Dyke show, which was the, it would be, we would follow this person's professional life and there would be a combination of home and professional life. That's really the Dick Van Dyke show's modality. That's what Mary Tyler Moore did as well. And new art would do the same thing. It would also have an ensemble cast uh, around him with Newhart playing the main role, similar to Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. Um, I think it differed in both of those programs in the fact that um, it did not have the type of uh, developing, especially the Mary Tyler Moore show, the developing supportive cast uh, where, as we've talked about, there was growth and development of those characters, whether it was Murray Slaughter or Ted Baxter or Georgette later or Lou Grant in the Maritime Moore show, the characters that surrounded new Bob Newhart and his program, um, Carol Kester, who was played by the incomparable 
incomparable Marshall Wallace, uh, his secretary. Um, and of course, you, Yitzchuk, have to, as I told you in a previous conversation, you always have to be makertov to how she gave life to Mrs. Krabappel in such a meaningful way. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'll tell you, because there was a, a show earlier, you know, on the radio was really where it was much better than on television. We mentioned before is Armis Brooks that also had that same, it followed her professional life and her personal life. And I think in a certain way, Mrs. Krabappel was a, a very similar character to Eve Arden's you know, she 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 was her own. She was she wasn't a a, a copy of of Eve Arden, but it it was that similar type of a, of a tone. I think that really embraced uh, Mrs. Krabappel. Well, I get. Well, look, look. Obviously, when it comes to animation, and the voice talent is is crucial. Well, it's uh, the same thing you're talking on the of a radio show. Right, right, right. A hundred percent. I would say that. Um, you know that uh, you know Marshall Wallace. Uh, you know that role. Obviously, those you know those are her two roles. I mean, she did win an Emmy, by the way, uh, for The Simpsons. Uh, she never was even nominated for her role in in Newhart. In fact, Newhart was was never Newhart never was even nominated for an Emmy for all its six years. You know, Bob, Bob the, not the Bob Newhart show, the Newhart show that came on in 82, which was sort of like, um, in a way, a, a a further development of some of the principles that are the original Bob Newhart show. That was the one I remember you right, know, when I was a kid. Right. That, that show actually did garner a number of Emmys, but um, the original program did not by, by none of that cast. So we had Marshall Wallace. Um, he also had Peter Bonners, who was really not much of an actor, but did a lot of the directing. He played Jerry Robinson. Um, New, Bob Newhart, of course, was the psychologist. Bob Hartley in a Chicago um, office building. So you had the office where you had, uh, you know, Peter Bonners playing uh, the, the dentist, Jerry Robinson. Um, there were some episodes where you saw that this wasn't just two offices, that Carol was actually the receptionist for a whole slew of doctors. And unfortunately, they didn't bring those doctors back enough. I guess part of it is you don't want to pay so many actors to come in. But th- there was quite a, a, a humorous array of proctologists and other sorts of doctors from all different walks that the, the program had a lot of fun with. Um, and then there was, of course, his home life. And his home life, he was he was married to Suzanne Plachette. Now, let me just say this: Bob Newhart, in, in his in these two um, um, sitcoms that he was the star in, this sort of short, bald, um, non-charismatic fellow is married to you know luscious Hollywood stars in both of these cases, right? He's married to Suzanne Plachette. In, in his in his young days, Suzanne Plachette, of course, was uh, was was an actress that I'll always remember her from The Birds, uh, Hitchcock's uh, incredible uh, horror film, where she gets pecked to death by um, by the birds that are attacking the school as she is trying to actually save the children. Um, and uh, you know, you know, she in in the birds uh, radiates a sensuality and power, especially in, 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 in anger and a grief. 
and 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 so much that Hitch was able to bring out of her because she represents the you know the spurned love interest of Rod Taylor. Uh, Tepe Tepe Hedren uh, comes to that little seaside town in California, and she meets uh, Suzanne Plachet, um, who, who who's playing Rod Taylor's you know girl spurned girlfriend. Uh, in, in, in the limited screen time she has there, she made such an impression and, and she shows acting chops. And unfortunately, I don't think she ever, she didn't really show that much, you know, on the program where she was mostly a comedic foil. She definitely has great line delivery. Um, and um, Bill, uh, Bill Daly, who uh, of course was on, um, was a Major Healy, Larry Hagman's sidekick in I Dream of Jeannie for so many years. When I Dream of Jeannie was canceled, they picked him up to be the next door neighbor, who was a Howard Borden, who was the uh, who was a navigator, who somehow had a fear of going up in planes, and you know his religion was based on the fact that he, <laughs> you know, of all the all the, the near death experiences that happened to him uh, as a navigator on on airplanes, um, but Bill Daly, you know, played it as sort of a Gilligan like character, uh, a completely clueless fellow who, you know, was sort of like dim-witted and not exactly, not necessarily great-hearted either, uh, somewhat of a stingy, uh, self-centered fellow. But and that, in a way, I think is one of the reasons why the program is, is, is sort of different than and Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke. The, the cast is really other than Suzanne Plachette, there's somewhat of, of, of you know, you do feel a lot for, uh, there are some uh, episodes that are uh, centered on Carol, uh, and, and especially, you know, as a single woman who's trying to find her mate, there is some Rahmanis there, but most of the characters, I think, are really... Which, which, are, was, which was Mrs. Corbapel also. I mean, that's she, right, that's right. She was, she, she... But most of the characters, even Carol, most of the time, played mostly an absurd character that was either, you know, getting, you know, making a joke at the expense of Bob Newhart slash Bob Hartley, or was involved in something that, you know, Hartley could just, you know, Bob Newhart could sort of do a double take for how strange they were and how infantile they were. Um, You know, Jerry you know, is, is, is a, is a bachelor who just is really on the make, but really doesn't have much to him. And, and I think that's the, the truth about, about Howard as well. Um, it, it really, I, I, I'm not saying that the support I mean, of Cap, they were a foil for, for him. Right. But, but there were also ways for him to sort of like stuck them, as we say in Yiddish, there were ways for him to comment about them. They were his friends, but they were sort of like um, a, a, dysfunctional group where I don't think that was the case in Mary Tyler Moore as much as they knew that Ted was an egocentric baby but there were, and, 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 and Sue Ann Nivens was a nymphomaniac who had uh, self uh, dignity issues but I think that these were they still the characters really were drawn with enough firm rigidity that they, they had to be true to the character consistently Whereas I think in the Bob Newhart show, it, those characters could really be absurd. They could be strange. They could actually from they'd be different from one episode from the other. Um, they didn't need the same sort of consistency. Um, and, and I think that's, in a way, the weakness of the program. 
but it, but but from some perspective, it might be one of the great parts of the program because they could explore topics and issues that other programs couldn't because they just couldn't fit in. Like you you couldn't necessarily have a faith based program like the program I'm going to suggest. I think is one of the best of the new heart uh, on Hulu and watching them. If you can stand the commercials or go for the, uh, what is it? Yitzchak, there's like a, there's, there's, you can sign up for, for a Hulu plus or something and you don't have the commercials, but the, it's too bad. But one of the episodes it's from the second season, it's called somebody down here likes me. It's got John. You you couldn't skip the commercials in the seventies, so I I I, I, I understand, but you know we we get old, Yitzchak, and 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 also there's also some dissonance when when the commercial doesn't really jive with the time period of what you're watching. You know, I wouldn't mind some seventies commercials. You know, I wouldn't mind some Lark cigarette commercials or whatever it was they'd be playing or for Pop Tarts. But when the commercials are for all these different types of drugs, you know, uh, and all these drugs for depression or whatever it is that they're selling. Oh, well, that's uh, that fits with with the Bob Newhart show. Yeah, okay, you're right, but still. Um, and that's another I mean, thing. I, I, I mean, there was another show that you had mentioned before that could attack these these subjects which was soap but it but it, it was much more absurd this was right this soap had like an emblem of being serious that soap never had no i agree with you soap soap was soap had space aliens who took people's bodies over right they right um and, and but it had a lot it had a lot of religious themes but true very, that's true this, this was this the the difference between this and soap is that this was respectful to the material that oh, 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 the format it was it was basically you know you you had to show him at work and that he wasn't just some sort of buffoon again politically incorrect for today's standards uh, obviously he has a lot of fun hartley does um although he seems to be dedicated to his patients, there's a lot of uh, humor at the expense of people with anxiety, of people with issues, of people with anger issues, people that are antisocial. Um, you know, Mr. Carlin was one of the more uh, uh, famous of his, uh, of his recurring patients. Um, there was group therapy sessions that were really completely um, not what you would expect a, a, a group therapy session to be. Plus, there was no sense of of, of client uh, doctor privilege because he, he would talk about all his patients with with not only with Carol the the, the receptionist he would talk to them about it with his wife and other people totally against what you know should be I, mean, I, I I know one one very prominent from psychologist who is also a rabbi and he he was the president of a shul but he, he functioned both as a rub and the president. And all his drushes, I mean, I spent one summer there, and all of his drushes were, you know, he didn't he didn't mention any by name, of course, but he he, he would talk about the, you know, about his patients. Yeah, right? well, it, it, it's a good place to mine uh, struggles and issues, and but it would it, it's totally again, you know, the Sopranos it was built the framing device of the Sopranos was Tony talking to his um, psychologist. And 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 the, and the and the program does such a great job of 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 how uh, Lorraine Bracco, who plays the psychologist, is able to somehow keep her professional equanimity while she's dealing with this mobster and and, and the and the challenge that she has. 
Uh, and I think that was, many psychologists will point to that program as, if not realistic, but at least having a psychologist and, and some of the real struggles that they have. Newart, I mean, look, we know that Bob Newart, we don't buy him as a psychologist. You know what I'm saying? He is a comedian, a stand-up guy who is, you know, who's basically wry and a little bit nervous and self-conscious. And that's really, you know, it's just a shtick to be able to poke fun. I'll at- tell you, uh, you know, at, at, as part of our training, when I started working at, or I think it was a part of the annual training at Rockland Psychiatric Center, they would show a skit, I think it was from Saturday Night Live or maybe from Mad TV, uh, where Bob Newhart himself is the guest and he and he's listening to all the problems that's, that the patient has and then he's just, well, stop it. You know, that's just, that's just his answer. You're, 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 you're nervous? Yeah, yeah. Stop it. Don't be nervous. <laughs> you know, that was just... <laughs> And again, you know, the, the, the program, like, you know, you know, people talk today about, um, you know, the, the, the evil that was Bill Cosby, uh, but they mentioned the fact that, you know, he, he played a gynecologist, you know, he played an obstetrician gynecologist, which was, you know, the character he played, now, of course, you know, Cosby is also just a stand-up comic. Uh, and you know, similar to New Art in a way, because for years they would just tell stories, and it was basically his records and New Art's records were all, you know, go, you know, really, you know, going, uh, and they all went gold, etc. But the idea of Cosby being a uh, like, like what, you know, now that you know that he was a molester, how he would molest women and stuff like that, it sort of makes sense that he sort of, you know, he decided to put himself in that role. I'm not sure. Again, New Art, I guess, as a observer of people's um, foibles i guess that's why perhaps newark wanted to have himself as a psychologist but i think that much of the humor came from the the antic and incorrect behavior of his patient but yet as i said they were able to explore one-shot programs that i think to do it in a more effective way than mary tyler moore and dick van dyke and even though you know there there are great episodes that explore the jury system let's say in dick van dyke or when mary tomorrow when she becomes addicted to sleeping pills uh, and, and those are really wonderful shows but it, but it's almost like newhart was able to develop like a, a a a chapter that wasn't that didn't need to fit in you didn't have the baggage of the other characters in the story the other players of the program needing to have a role there. John McMartin called Someone Down Here Likes Me, where the setup is that um, that um, his wife has, Emily has bought at an auction because of wanting to support the church, she's bought a Bible for $350, which I think someone wrote on on the internet uh, today would be a couple of thousand dollars. And, you know, part of Newhart's character is, although he seems to live comfortably on a Lakeshore Drive apartment, um, he is a uh, sort of quite a cheap fellow. And the the program uh, makes sure to emphasize this. And he wants to give back the Bible because it's too much. And uh, he goes to the church to return that. And he discovers a very affable, uh, witty, um, 
friendly fellow who is his who is his minister, although clearly he doesn't show up to church that often. John McMartin plays the minister, and um, he he really does a great job of what ministers and rabbis and people of the cloth and all religions who manage a church or a shul have to do, which is they understand that uh, it's a business sometimes and you have to pay the bills. You have a lot of tzedakah that you need to try to get. And when it, you're not so, uh, you're not so ready to just give back money and you, you're not above using guilt in order to make sure that the person uh, actually fulfills his donation the way he says so but he actually offers some great wisdom the 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 episode was written by a jewish fellow peter meyerson um and i, I remember looking him up years ago and he was quite a a prolific uh, writer for television programs and he really gets it right uh where he says well you know look <laughs> i'm not above making you feel guilty about uh you know not want, wanting to take back your money uh, and eventually, uh, it's a beautiful setup uh, because, uh, you know, he's fixing the air conditioning ducts. And uh, there's obviously a, a handyman uh, or a, a person or an air conditioning specialist, HVAC specialist, who is who he's talking to before Newhart walks in to try to give back the Bible. And, uh, you know, what seals the deal that he get, that he gives him back the money as you can hear the voice from above sort of so to speak coming from the air conditioning duck about saying uh reverend bradford i'm coming down <laughs> and once you hear that the new art you know does a little double take and gives him the money um but the, the program really becomes interesting when you realize that bradford is, is is friendly and affable and is not so comfortable in his job because in his job People expect him to be way above everyone else, that he doesn't, he can't have desires and interests and really have normal conversations and enjoy football games. Uh, he says he can't go to, he says he wish, sometimes he wishes he was a rabbi. So this way he can go to football games on Sunday and not be busy all the time. Um, it's, 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 it, it really indicates the, what we both know uh, and this program is sort of like a symbol of it, the one, one we're doing now, that well, how can rabbis know about movies? How can rabbis talk about anything? Um, and and he, he feels that consistently because he is the minister. Everyone treats him in a way that, uh, that with an elevation that doesn't allow him to have normal human contact. He's always on. He's always, he needs to always send his message. And when he sometimes... It wants to like he talks about going to a movie with Bob. Uh, he, he mentions because he comes to see Bob as a psychologist, um, and he he talks about the fact that he went to see, which at that time was a very famous movie. You might have heard about it, Last Tango in Paris. You might have heard of that film, uh, which is was was like sort of like a softcore porn film that was like an art film, and everybody went to see it, but were sort of embarrassed to say they went to see it. And he says, "Yeah, I saw it, but I had some of my." parishioners there and they were so embarrassed that i was there that they walked out and 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 and, and it really in a way captures the idea of people who have religious feeling who are good at their job but maybe they haven't become the tzaddik they haven't become the saint they haven't become the complete role model and their their flock won't let them um, and, and, and maybe for good reason, but it really captures that struggle. Um, the other thing it captures is, is that when someone 
is known to be a minister, a rabbi, a priest, uh, everyone around them uh, goes into a sort of an artifice mode. And that's what happens when uh, he comes, you know, without, without wearing any collar, without any robes, he comes to the office and Carol starts flirting with him. And he, he mentions, you know, one of the things you're allowed to say, Yitzchak, is, you know, even on a date, uh, in a firm date, is you have a very nice smile. So he thought that's one of the compliments that he gives, um, you know, uh, Marsha Wallace playing Carol. But, you know, she's wearing a very low-cut dress. And it turns out later with a slit skirt. And when she realizes that he's the reverend, she, she all of a sudden uh, is shocked and she covers herself up. And when she comes in to give coffee, you know, she, 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 she makes sure that she's walking in the most sneeistic way. And she says, bless you. And, you know, and, 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 and uh, McMartin playing Bradford says to Hartley, to, you are playing Hartley. This is what's wrong. He says, I can't be a regular person. And even if I'd like to, to continue my vocation, I, I can't do it because it's not like I'm on a ladder that everybody else is helping me climb on. I'm on a ladder that no one is there with me. Um, and, and, and I think there's, it's possible that had a, had a person been elevated as one of the flock, with the flock recognizing that he's not a finished total product and maybe never will be, he, he wouldn't necessarily feel the restraints of living a, living a life that was is somewhat hypocritical. And I think that this, I've never seen a program more accurately capture uh, what, many, what many rabbis and, and, and teachers go through. It, it isn't about being a hypocrite. Because, you know, but it's about not being there yet and people not allowing you to have those foibles, not allowing you to have, not the slip-ups, but not even allowing you to be like one of them. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, Yitzhak. And I think I mean, that... It, it, it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, you know, I work in a place, it's a prosta place. There, there's a mile of not being one of them. There's a mile of... Being, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, and I do, I, I do feel there's a tailus in being interested in, in these secular things that I have what to talk to people about. But on the other hand, you know, there's, there is a feeling of, you know, when I, when, if, if, even though people don't uh, watch necessarily their language around me, but they express their guilt. Like, oh, sorry, Rabbi, I, 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 I should have been. The fact that we're just there in the room transforms the room. If I, if I just sit either in the hospital or in the, or in the prison and just sit and watch television or play cards or whatever, play chess with an inmate or, or a patient, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, I am ministering to them while I'm doing that. I, I told, I know one of the priests I work with, he, he talks a lot about the ministry of presence. And I told him, you know, there's one saint was very famous for the ministry of presence was, was St. Nicholas, but a, a different type of presence. Yeah, right. Well, yes, look, look I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I think that the problem is, is that it's hard to be on an island. I think when there isn't the, the great chasm that separates the flock 
and the priest, the rabbi and the minister, then there is an area where you could be a leader and still feel you have a social life and you could still feel that you have friends and people you can talk to. And that's what you have in certain certain denominations. Oh yeah, I agree. That's true. That though, and you do have and the Jehovah's Witnesses. A hundred percent. And that and, and that is the, the show or doesn't only, exp- or among the Mormons where everybody holds priesthood. One of the reasons you can have a situation where you have people like the Hartleys who don't come to church, who only are spurred by guilt, is because of the distance that exists between their minister and themselves. They expect the minister to be able to sort of give them elevation, but there isn't that sense of inclusion so when you have this you know this great figure above and you just have to come and you know come in on sundays once in a while and 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 put in money in the uh, in the plate but where where is the place that you meet uh, yes i would you know this you know uh, reverend bradford had he been in a, in a more quaker style religion where they recognize him for his orator oratory they recognize him for his gifts for his humor for his ability to inspire but there's still an area where he could, in a way, be convivial and be gregarious and himself, then he could continue. It is, as you know, it is hard being on. I know so many rabbis, Yitzchak, who need to take vacations, and when they, and you can't reach them. They have to go away, and they don't tell you where they're going because of the intense pressure of being on. Of course, it's 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 a godly profession. It's a wonderful thing they do, but they they suffer burnout if they don't, um, you know, take a, a, a vacation from it. And nobody knows. And I think that's really what this program does, and it's able to explore by bringing in this character that you're never going to see again, you never heard before, and and Bob never goes to church. I don't know if any other time in the um, in the episode, but they were at least able to deal with that topic in a way, and, and, and many others that they're able to, to deal with because you can have a one-off episode. Um, and, and that really came, I think, from the weakness and what could be the strength Newhart was, I think, really like an update of, of Green Acres in a way, where you really have a character who is sort of out of place. He's run, again, he runs this hotel in Vermont, and everyone around him um, you know, considers him a buffoon, uh, you know, an egghead, someone that really doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and all the characters there are really all, all the new art characters, whether it's uh, the heiress who somehow is escaping her parents and is working as a maitre d' or, or the other fellow. They're all basically um, very thin, you know, one-dimensional weirdos. Uh, they're funny, Right. But, uh, you know, other than him and his wife, I don't think there's really much um, there. And again, share a lot of the the sense of absurd and deadpan aspect that he had in the original program. Uh, obviously, the people who know anything about Newhart knows the ultimate shtick that Bob Newhart and company uh, did, which is how he ended the uh, how he ended the, the program that you were more familiar with, the Newhart show. He ended it with the last program was that he wakes up. In, and, and where is he? He's in the, and this was a little bit, a little bit pushing the envelope in 1972, although not really that much, that he slept in the same bed with one giant 
king bed or queen bed with uh, with his wife. He wakes up in bed with Suzanne Plachette again instead of Mary Fran, yeah. and he realizes that he's had this such a oh, strange dream. Yeah. Yes. Now, <laughs> what's what's funny is it's called that that. Uh, like, they, I, didn't, I didn't cop it when I remember when it when that was first aired, and I didn't cop it at the time because I didn't know about the other show until much later you know and then i put two and two together afterwards but it was supposedly the studio audience had no idea and none of the cast besides newhart knew that they brought in it was very secret how they brought in suzanne plachette and when they saw that um bedroom from the original newhart show the 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 studio audience couldn't control themselves they were in such shock about what they were seeing that it was just seeing the setup in the bed was like you could hear the authentic it wasn't a laugh track because it was it was like the greatest and most people say it's the best most inventive ending you could come up with um What's, and it really shows again how Newhart was essentially that same, you know, character that they that that some TV executives decided to make him a psychologist here and make him a uh, a, uh, a a hotelier uh, over there. Uh, I should tell you though, by the way, that a similar not many people know that at the end of the fifth uh, season of the Bob Newhart show, Emily is pregnant, and so is Carol who has gotten married uh, on a lark. She's gotten married to someone very, right? So, and Newhart uh, fought tooth and nail about this pregnancy coming to fruition. He said, oh, that's a very funny show, what you wrote, but who's going to play Bob? (laughs) Because he did not want there to be a child. He said, that is a television trope when there's a child and the father doesn't know what he's doing. And he says, that's been done so many times. He says, I'm not, he says, you want to put a kid in the show? I'm leaving the show. So what they ended up doing was saying that it was, I think, the beginning of the sixth season, they said it was a dream. So the the idea of Bob deciding to blank out the past of what had been part of the television uh, reality becoming a dream, they actually done that in the old Bob Newhart show, where it turns out Carol was not really pregnant, Emily was not really pregnant, and I don't think either Carol was too, because Bob did not want to resort to, you know, the idea of let's, let's bring in a kid, which Bewitched and many other uh, programs did. Uh, uh, you know, let's bring in Tabitha and let's bring in a kid. You know, that's that's a way to keep the the program interesting and people being involved. Even Lucy, of course, of course, which they which they had to do because they needed to uh, somehow cover up Lucille Ball's pregnancy. But that's something that Newhart refused to do, and that shows, I think, a little bit of his integrity uh, uh, as a performer. Um, that, that. Another thing I should mention before we sign off is that the show resonated for me because I, you know, was a kid in Memphis and television was a way, these sitcoms, to tell me that there's a place called Minneapolis, there's a place called New Rochelle, and and and, and this really explained to me and showed me scenes out of Chicago. Uh, the, the program starts with, with many classic images of Chicago, catching the L, going downtown, the, uh, um, the, 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 the Chicago River. Uh, these are uh, by Lake Michigan. And, and Newhart, because he was a Chicago boy, because he was from Oak Park, which is a suburb of Chicago, he wanted the program to be based in Chicago. Uh, and I have to say, although Mary goes to Minneapolis, there aren't any, icon- you know, you don't have Minneapolis as an iconic place other than the snow and the ice uh, that the program always talks about. Uh, whereas 
in Newhart, there's constant references to the Chicago streets uh, and, and, and things that are happening in Chicago. And it, it was about time. So much of Hollywood was New York, New York, New, you know, Hollywood and, and television was New York. The sitcoms were based in New York or someplace like New York, um, whether it was The Honeymooners or I Love Lucy. So I think, you know, but, yeah, it's all in New York. You know, the, 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 it doesn't make a difference which soundstage it was. It was it was nice to see Chicago finally get something. Of course, they uh, Chicago came in again, of course, with Good Times, which was also based on the Chicago housing project. Uh, somehow, um, uh, I don't know how Florida somehow went from uh, from Tuckahoe County, wherever it was, Tuckahoe, Long Island with Marge. He ended up somehow ending up in Chicago. But but there was I give Newhart credit for and he himself for trying to make Chicago a character uh, in the in, in the program, at least to to flesh out again. Obviously, you know, you production values didn't actually allow them to. To, to stride there but as a as a 20-year Chicagoan um watching the program again uh you know, I appreciate hearing those street names uh, really accurate as well the one thing of course that doesn't happen in any of these shows as you know you look is is any sort of fealty to the accents of the midwest <laughs> right um you know the idea of actors really sounding like they come from the places they're supposed to that's something that's somewhat later in in, in television and movies where they had dialect coaches that would allow people to speak in a certain way most of the time it's just a hodgepodge of various accents um but still um, you know, it was it was my first taste of what uh, Chicago was like, and it was a place I spent 20 years of my life. So I, I guess it's it, I guess it, it rings in some way. I have a sentimental connection because of that. Well, my friends, that's about it, my friends, a sentimental as well. Um, and we'll catch you hopefully next time. Uh, watch your step on the way out. Be well, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.